Hello and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, the director. This week, we're looking at the first round of Turkey's presidential and parliamentary elections. A recording on Thursday and President Erdogan is just a hair's breadth away from getting the 50% of the vote needed to become president. But it looks as though Turkey is set for a presidential runoff on the 28th of May. So we're going to ask what this means for Turkey's democracy. Has the opposition under Kemal Kilic Darodu lost momentum? What impact did issues such as identity politics, the economy, foreign policy, and the really devastating earthquakes play in the election? We're also going to look more broadly to what this might mean for Turkey's place in the world, with Turkey potentially about to enter a third decade of rule under Erdogan. What will this mean for Ankara's ties to Russia, China, Europe, and the United States? What does this mean for Sweden's entry into NATO? Much on Sweden's mind. For relations with Syria and the Middle East, what about Ukraine across the Black Sea? Well, I've got a terrific panel here this week, and thank you for joining me from all kinds of places. Galip Dale is a returning voice to the show and an associate fellow with our MENA program. Welcome to the podcast, Galip. Thank you. Timothy Ash is an associate fellow with our Russia and Eurasia program. Welcome, Tim. Hello. Nice to be here. And with them down the line is Evren Bolter, a professor of international relations at Ozyen University. Welcome, Evren. Hello. Nice to be here. Very good to have you. And finally, we have journalist Gunay Yildiz, formerly with the BBC, but now at Cambridge University. Welcome. Thanks for your invitation. Great to have you all here. Gallup, maybe I can start with you. And just talking about the first round of Turkey's presidential election, you spent election night in Istanbul and then Ankara. Yes. Where has it left us? Yes, I was in Istanbul and then I went to the Ankara. So it was very good and interesting to observe the election, the mood in the countries. This was a very pivotal presidential and parliamentary elections that we had. And it was a very high stakes election. We could see this, the stakes in the narrative of the both sides going to the elections in the in the symbols that they were employing, for instance, like, you know, going to the election, the President Erdogan basically emphasized the continuity in government, fighting the terrorism, the continuation of Turkish grandeur in international affairs, the autonomy in foreign and security policy, including in defense industry, whereas the opposition narrative very much focused on change almost in all policy areas, ending the one-man rule, ending the economic crisis, and we saw this also represented by the different symbols that the both sides employed. The opposition used onion to show the increasing prices and difficulty for the ordinary people to live. And Erdogan emphasized drones and Turkish defense industry represented Turkish grandeur in foreign and security policy. The opposition leader represented Mr. Normal, Erdogan represented Mr. Charisma. So everything was very different. And for the first time, actually, there was very high expectation across the board on the opposition level side that they can win. So this is the first election since Erdogan came to power in 2002 that we could not foretell the results. And actually many polls shows very high margin for like comfortable margin for the opposition leader to win. But they were proven because Erdogan has received almost 49.5% of the vote. The opposition can see almost 45 and Erdogan is going to second round with numeric and psychological comfort. So the drone ahead of the onion at this point and yes. looking like we're definitely on course for that second 
runoff. There were complaints by the opposition and by some people close to the opposition. Fraud, is that your perception? I think, I mean, thus far, the picture that we are seeing, actually, there isn't any uh, significant fraud. I mean, there might be like some irregularity here and there, but nothing that can change the overall picture in parliamentary and presidential elections. So in this regard, no uh, significant fraud. Everyone, how do you see these results? What do they tell us about the forces at play in this election? Um, let me start where Gallup left, actually, from the economy, because economy played. And we were thinking that it was going to play a lot of role in the elections, and I do think it played a lot of role. Um, I mean, there's high inflation, depreciation of Turkish dura. Economy is really in a big crisis. And in conditions like that, this could have been detrimental for any kind of incumbent government, but it didn't happen. And I think two major factors really leveled out the effect of the economic crisis. One is the expectations, because subjective evaluations and also expectations about the future performance of the opposition really mattered in the decisions of the when deciding for who to vote. The government sent messages to the voters that they had a plan, but simply needed more time for it to produce results. This goes correct for the earthquake reconstruction efforts as well. They also sent several messages about the inability of the opposition to govern the economy. And this message, as Ghalib said, was very crucial during the throughout the electoral campaign. And what we also see is extensive, I mean, really extensive electoral spending, the level that Turkey has never, ever witnessed. I mean, it was historical in a sense, because what we see is a significant increase in the minimum wage for civil servants and hiking in the minimum wage for almost 55%. Early retirement packages for almost 2.5 million people, and this is a huge number. And in fact, on the top of that, we also see free natural gas for households for a month and also some additional benefits and free packages for for all households for the next year. This is huge. I think economy really played a role in a sense, but let me emphasize one more thing and I'll stop there and we can continue. Polarization and leadership um, also mattered a lot. Partisanship is very strong in Turkey. The emotional connection to Erdogan is very strong. And what we see in the election is that many people didn't want to leave Erdogan behind. Um, and maybe what we see is very calcified voting patterns. And, um, and that played a role, as we see. And also nationalism is the last thing. We may revisit this theme, but the nationalism seems to play a lot of role in terms of anti-immigrant attitudes and anti-Kurdish attitudes. The third candidate really sort of mobilized these sentiments and attitudes of the elected. And also incumbent government, President Erdogan, mobilized these same sentiments, not the anti-immigrant sentiment, but the anti-Kurdish sentiment a lot. Thank you. I'm going to come back to those points um, about immigrants. Thank you for that, immigrants and the Kurds. But Gune, what about the opposition? Is there any chance that Kilic Darolu could triumph in the second round? We are witnessing a first in Turkish politics, like a runoff in elections. Like Globally, candidates who win first round often take the second round as well. And Erdogan currently in the lead you know, holds a parliamentary majority, which will work in his advantage. In Turkish political history, though, we can identify two instances similar to a second round, one in 2015 and in another in 2019. On both occasions, we saw like the water sentiment occurred 
you know, you know, to be shifted like in short periods, indicating that like 10 day, even a 10 day gap in sub is very substantial in Turkish politics. And I have to say about the opposition success, you know, the possibility of their success is that success in Turkish politics rests on three main factors, a charismatic leader uh, who inspires trust and tapping into the, and the second layer is, is tapping into the, the nationalist conservative voter base as a, you know, which is at least 70 to 80% of the electorate and keeping liberals and the Kurds on board while doing so. I would give a very high mark to Kılıçdaroğlu in this, you know, in, in terms of, and despite hailing from an Alevi and Kurdish town, he managed to reach out to nationalists and establishing, by establishing a diverse alliance with nationalists and, and Islamists and conservatives. Um, I have to say that the alliance members, apparently, especially conservative and nationalist ones, apparently couldn't deliver as much as it was expected. I would give, you know, a lower mark to Kulçdaroğlu on the first uh, winning, you know, the first layer, the charismatic leadership. And the third layer is the party's organizational and technical capabilities. So on that, Kulçdaroğlu uh, receives a very low mark from me in most cities beyond Istanbul. So the CHP's organization and their technical capabilities were much lower than also expected. So unless they increase their performance in the second and third layers, I think they are going to lose the election. All right. And so from what you're saying, you think President, um, the president is probably, from what we can judge now, on course to win? That's my expectation. I'll be surprised if the things turn the other way. But it's not an impossibility. We're not going to hold you to it. Many, many things happen in elections that are surprising to people. But Tim, do you regard this election outcome as a surprise? And I'd love you to take us a bit into how other countries have responded so far. Well, surprise. I mean, I was 50-50 on the election. I mean, I know the polls were saying a big win for the opposition. But, you know, the Russians have a great phrase, which is political technology. Erdogan is a genius political technology. And I think if you look at the build-ups of the election, he banned Imamoglu. He ensured that Kilicharoglu was the candidate that ran against him. Perfect candidate for Erdogan to run against. And Alevi, I know a lot was made that Turks are different. They will vote for an Alevi, but it's a majority sunny country. That's important. Fiscal, the public finances were in pretty good order in the run-up to the vote. Huge lamb bar barreling, as I call it, not pork barreling. No hikes in minimum wage, public sector salaries, pensions. You know, he's been preparing for this election arrive, and he felt the pulse of the nation, I think. You know, it's a socially conservative country. Uh, he appealed to the sort of nationalist, socialist, conservative thing, banged the, you know, technology drum, helicopter carrier. First one Turkey's had was, was, was docked in Istanbul port in the run-up to the election. Unmanned fighter jet flying over the skies of Istanbul a new electric car, the gas supplies. It's a difficult environment. It's a difficult geopolitical setting around Turkey. And in the end, I think they just thought they, they need a strong person like Erdogan to, to, to kind of bang the drum for Turkey and stand up for Turkey's interests. And they weren't convinced that Kılıçdaroğlu could do that. So I think it's a combination of, you know, Erdogan is an impressive campaigner, genius at political technology, and Kılıçdaroğlu was kind of the wrong candidate. I mean, that's the reality. Tim, thanks for that. Galp, I'm really struck by how we're all talking as if um, for all the discussion about the health of Turkish democracy under Erdogan, that these elections have been should be absolutely regarded as democratic elections, which Erdogan has fought hard and been voted for, by, for good reasons, by people. 
Um, and you might think, listening to our discussion so far, that Turkish democracy was in great shape. But some candidates, as Tim was alluding to, really, some candidates that, who might have been more charismatic challengers were pushed aside by him, weren't they? Yes. I mean, there was potential, other potential candidates in the form of Mayor Imamoğlu and Ankara Mayor Mansur Yavaş. Both of them are appealing to different voting base, for instance, at a time when the nationalism is on the rise and the nationalism is actually the winner of the of this election. The Ankara mayor hails from a nationalist background. So the idea is that he might have appealed to nationalist voters, but his difficulty was that he might not get the Kurdish voters. And then the Imamoglu was seen that can be someone that can appeal to both voters, but he also faced the prospect of being banned from politics because towards the end of the last year in in December, there was a judicial case, politically motivated judicial case against him that was trying to like ban him from politics and even facing Im- imprisonment charges. So on this point about what we should think of the state of Turkish democracy, given, you know, candidates being banned from politics and this kind of thing, how should we assess it? It wasn't banned. So the case was launched, but no decision made. But uh, nevertheless, it was, you know, it was a threat. The threat of ban was there. So in a sense, the Turkish democracy is remains to be a faulty one. But the elections are genuine in Turkey, as we saw in 2019 with the opposition victories in Istanbul, in Ankara, almost in all major metropolitan areas. And I think one other interesting result of this election, the fact that the opposition still has lead in almost all major cities in and in the coastal areas of Aegean and Mediterranean and the Kurdish region. So the Kurdish, re- in the Kurdish majority region and the Aegean and Mediterranean coastal part of Turkey and all major cities, including Istanbul and Ankara, the opposition does have a lead and that might have some implication for the upcoming local election in 2024. Evren, if President Erdogan is re-elected in the second round, what do you think he will do with the next term of his presidency? One of the things that is going to, at the societal level, probably is going to happen that Turkish democracy is going to stay and remain very polarized. In fact, even more polarized as it has been for a decade or so. It will be polarized over values. It will be polarized over nationalism. And President Erdogan is going to keep using the nationalist card and the conservative card, which is not the same card that he used. I mean, it's the label is the same, conservative, secular cleavage maybe. But now President Erdogan is basically using or focusing more on the agenda of the far right. And the far right is more about LGBTQ rights, family values and gender equality and things like that, not religious freedoms. It used to be more religious freedoms. And probably this agenda is going to shape the politics of Turkey a lot in the next four or five years. Nationalism definitely is going to be shaping Turkish politics in the next four and five years. What else? I mean, probably Erdogan has to do, um, and that's the imperative for all political parties, whoever wins, economy is the most important thing. Um, and, And you need to find a balance, you know, Uh, I mean, even President Erdogan cannot go with this condition of the economy. And in fact, I do think that he's going to keep up with the unorthodox policies that he has been applying. But there will be some sort of adjustment to the economic policies, I would think. And also he will need foreign support 
FDI and investments, money coming in, and that would require the normalization of relations. And this is not new. In fact, Erdogan has been in the process, in the path of normalization of Turkey's foreign policy in the last two years, mostly in the last year. So that path, I think, is going to continue as well. Great. Thank you. Let's just hold on to that thought about the normalization of foreign politics just for a moment. Coming on to that, but Gune, a few thoughts from you on what the president might do with another term. I think domestically, a President Erdogan sees this as a validation of his policies. And the next step for Erdogan, which will be very troubling for the Turkish democracy, is to try start shaping the opposition as well. So Erdogan has been controlling the government, state institutions, politicizing state institutions from security to others. And now I think the next step will be to you know el- eliminate some unwanted figures, as Galip mentioned also previously, like the Istanbul mayor and others. So Erdogan is, if this was a football match, Erdogan is a strong team, he has a strong team, but he also controls referees. And he wants to dictate who is going to, to play against him there as well. So I think that will be the next step. And we have already heard some AK Party officials mentioning that this will be the case. May I just jump in? And he already said that he's planning to reform the, um, the presidential system in a way that he won't need the majority of the votes to win the elections. So he was questioning this um, 50 plus one requirement to be the president just like two weeks ago. So this is going to be on his agenda as well. Not any more majority votes for the president to be elected as the president, I guess. So really, this is an election that could change some fundamental things about Turkish democracy. Let's pick up, though, the thought that Evren brought in about foreign policy and indeed whether he is going to be forced to normalize Turkish foreign policy in a way because of the need to do something about the economy, the need for investment, the need to do deal with other countries. Tim, I wonder if you could kick this off for us. And we've seen on Russian state media a tilt towards Erdogan. Where do you see Turkey positioning itself if Erdogan does indeed go and win? Well, you're right. I mean, the economy is the difficulty and it's amazing that he's won this election with such a difficult economic backdrop. I mean, as soon as we get through the second round, assuming Erdogan wins, Turkey faces a huge balance of payments challenge. You know, you have $50 billion current account deficit, $180 billion of short-term debt, a $230 billion gross external financing requirement needs to be filled. Reserves are $100 billion, usable $20 billion. They've managed the currency in the last six months, kept it pretty stable by using, by blowing reserves, supplemented a bit by Gulf and Russian money. But the music kind of stops after the election. So they're going to have to let the currency go because it's, Turkish companies are struggling with competitiveness. And if obviously we know Erdogan is averse to interest rates, I think based on a religious faith-based opposition to using interest rates. So the central bank will have a really big challenge. It needs to allow the currency weaker to weaken to find a competitive level. But you end up in this devaluation kind of spiral without the backstop of use, a bit able to use interest rates. So really, really difficult. So, you know, what can he do? Sure, he can do a 180 on policy, reverse on interest rates. I don't think he's going to do that. He could try and hire someone credible to run economic policy. Mehmet Shimshek, former finance minister, has been mentioned. But would someone like that take the job without being given full control of everything, including rates? Kind of don't think so. So one option is, try and improve the relationship with the West. And obviously the first challenge in this relationship is going to be the decision on Sweden's NATO bid. And I think NATO is eager to get a sign off for Sweden to join NATO at the forthcoming June summit. I sense that 
Erdogan may well do that. I mean, I, he, he's used the Swedish NATO bid to stoke up domestic nationalist opposition around the Kurdish issue. If he wins the second round, it's kind of worked. Does he really need to continue that? I would say a gift to the West would be signing off on Sweden's NATO membership, and maybe that will improve the overall mood of music with the West. I don't think it's going to see a lot of capital inflows from institutional investors unless they change the central bank team and they completely change the monetary policy. It's very difficult to invest in a country where you have massively negative real interest rates with a massive external financing gap, an overvalued currency, and a guy at the top who basically doesn't believe in orthodox or normal economics as we kind of live in the markets. And you've touched on a really central point. I mean, this perverse view that Erdogan has taken of interest rates and inflation and, as you said, conventional economics, that's going to require him to change his views. There's been a few times, you know, when he hired Naji Agbal as central bank governor, and we all thought, wow, he can do a 180. And, you know, in the end, he fired him a couple of days, a couple of months later, and, you know, the currency ended up continuing to weaken. I mean, inflation is high in Turkey because of Erdogan's policies, right? That's the reality. There's global inflation. That's probably 10% of the inflation, but the rest is all because of this unorthodox monetary policy. And I just don't think he's going to change it because he ran in the election campaign on this policy and he believes it, right? And I think he'll try and get away with it for as long as he can, which would suggest that we are likely to see a lot of pressure on the exchange rate after the second round. You know, he'll take it to the wall. And then the question is what he does. You know, will he reverse? Will he eventually hire someone to hike policy rates and kind of stabilize the market? Will he go down the capital control route? He's not going to go to the IMF. Uh, will he try and go to the Russians and the Gulf guys to give money? Russia needs its own money now to wage its war in Ukraine. Putin will, won't want to give Erdogan a get out of jail card. He won't, he'd like to keep Turkey weak and dependent, so I don't think Russia's going to give them money. And the Gulf guys, interestingly, if you see their support programs elsewhere in the region, for Egypt, for Pakistan, for Tunisia, for Bahrain, they now demand economic orthodoxy. They demand either IMF programs or, you know, currency adjustments like is happening in Egypt or and rate hikes. So I think they, they would demand that. Also. They don't like being seen as a bank of free money. Yeah. So they do impose these days a lot of conditions, as you said, but you've taken us right into the heart of what to many people seems the looming problem of continuation of these, this economic crisis, partly because of what Erdogan believes perversely about um, interest rates and inflation, and at the same time, his instinct to try and increase control. Um, uh, and that is, um, you know, in many countries, a very uncomfortable mixture. Gallup, are you worried about this economic prospect that Tim has just been outlining? Well, the economic prospect does seem very grim and does seem very difficult, and particularly going to election, he very much implemented an election economy by, you know, hiking the minimum wages, by throwing money at people and by uh, putting pressure on the currency. So therefore now it's time to, you know, to face the bill. So uh, and I think it's not very easy for Erdogan to tighten the belt right after the election, given the fact that we will be going for a local election uh, in a nine months time. So and he's still lagging behind the opposition in almost all major cities. And I think his major motivation right now will be to win back, particularly Istanbul and Ankara. 
So he cannot really uh, go for a tight belt tightening anytime soon. And he is unlikely to go for an IMF, IMF program either because that will not be domestically good for him. He has voted many times that the IMF time in Turkey has finished. The Turkey will not go for IMF program again because this is also being framed as part of Turkey's autonomy in international affairs. The IMF seen as basically compromising this. And this leaves us with financial sources from the Gulf, from Russia, potential from China. But the question is, how much can they fill the gap? Because the gap and the hole is so big. And Russia did help prior to the election by delaying the Turkey's looming gas payments. But now after the election, the time for this also to be paid. So Therefore, the economy is going to be the single most important thing on the agenda the day one of the President Erdogan's presidency. Thank you. Evren, how do you think all this affects relations with the US and the EU? I think the, the relations between Turkey and the US and the EU probably going to remain transactional, as it has been. Um, so, like all the other people here in the panel, in the podcast, has said that economy is going to be the most important thing that's going to be shaping Turkey's relations with, with either with Russia or with the US and also with the EU. But most definitely, it's going to be the most important thing that shapes Turkey's relations with the EU, I think, the economic imperative. And also, Turkey, as I said... It will try to normalize its relations with the EU based on this economic imperative. Migration is definitely going to be on the on the top of the agenda as well. Very good point. President Erdogan also promised to revisit the migration deal that Turkey had with the EU. I mean, this was not on the top of his agenda, but it was on the top of opposition's agenda. And one of the most important things that really happened in this election is that migration is now one of the most significant issues in Turkey. It hasn't been a salient issue in the in, in the President Erdogan's political discourse up until now, but it has to be now, from now on. Given that this third-party candidate, Sinan Ogan, got most of the votes with his anti-immigration rhetoric, is very threatening for Erdogan, and probably Erdogan is going to really prioritize the issue of migration and will try to find a solution to the uh, migration problem. And that requires negotiations with the EU and a change in rhetoric. So I would expect that EU-Turkish relations is going to be shaped by economy and migration and most of all, at the top of all, transactionalism that has been shaping the relations. Good night. That's quite a, a pragmatic account we had from everyone focusing on the need to do these transactions. But, you know, we put that together again with a picture of economic growing economic crisis, if you like, at home. Do you think Erdogan can manage these two things, pragmatism abroad, and this really very difficult economic situation, which he's making worse at home? First, a word on the economy and its influence on politics. I identify Turkey's economy as a combination of chronic capitalism and patrimonial state. So this system affects different groups in distinct ways. So, you know, if you are, for example, if you have links to the government, and the overall state of economy is doing bad, but you have links to the government, you still benefit from the system. And you might think if the opposition wins and the overall state of the economy increases and becomes better, you might still lose your advantage of having links to the government so that in a, com comparatively you might do worse to other people in the country. So that's one reason why I think regional identities and other loyalties also trumps the economic card in a situation like today's 
Turkey. So, and here also there's like political logic and economic logic, which sometimes contradict each other. And it's difficult to kind of interpret them objectively. He has dealt with the unemployment, for example, to, to a certain degree in a country which is not growing fast. And political logic for him requires him to increase wages and, you know, keep the effect of the inflation as low as possible to people obviously running on an electioneering campaign, which is unsustainable. But I think it's important to understand why he has been, you know, pushing this way. In terms of foreign policy, in Turkish foreign policy is dictated by geopolitical necessities, strategic imperatives and a drive to ensure the regime's survival. So the geopolitical necessities such as the landscape in the Middle East, the West's withdrawal from the region will still be there and Turkey will still need to balance with, between countries such as Russia and, and regional countries. Strategic imperatives is because Ankara believes they, they shouldn't choose a firm side in the great power competition and they read it uh, correctly or incorrectly that the West is in dec decline so that they shouldn't they should engage also with Russia and China broadly and the regime survival aspect which is the third leg that I mentioned I think that will be less effective from now on for a certain period because Erdogan especially if he has a higher margin in the next election uh, in, in 10 days time then he might feel more you know secure and we'll see this as a validation of his policies and will be more flexible in foreign policy, being less concerned about you know, his survival. I mean, we cannot talk about an ideologically coherent foreign policy under Erdogan. So we, we cannot say Erdogan thinks this way and he will act that way. He has had so many turns, like 180 degrees turns. It's almost like to paraphrase Margaret Thatcher, I would say that the gentleman is for turning. And you know, Turkey will remain as a middle power and a mid power. Uh, that punches well above its weight. Consistent policy of survival, then. There are many politicians like that. Tim, I wonder if you could pull this whole picture together for us at the end, because what's striking me is on the foreign policy we've just been hearing, perhaps a bit more relaxation, more pragmatism, but we've got a picture of economic severity bordering on crisis at home, a leader absolutely convinced of a version of economics that is contributing to the problems and his own instincts for more authoritarian control, which could lead him to crack down as this crisis worsens. I mean, for those who you know, want a democratic future for Turkey, this contains the kernels of something rather worrying. Well, I'm not sure on the issue of democracy, etc. He's kind of won the election and I guess there's local elections due next year. I mean, the most immediate challenge is the economic and finance pressure point, how he's going to deal with that. If he doesn't increase interest rates, he'll let the currency go, and then maybe we'll go down a capital control route. And I guess the question, you know, it's a continuation of the policy we've had for the last decade, which is kind of perennial balance of payments crisis with the currency taking the strain and him not really being willing to do what he needs to do in terms of interest rates. And I guess the question is, when the perennial mini balance of payments crisis end up in systemic economic crisis, right? It's remarkable, you know, the central bank has had, had 100 billion gross reserves, net reserves, probably minus 60. Central bank, more or less bankrupt. I mean, it's, you know, Lebanon had a similar massively negative net international reserve position. Do people lose faith in the currency and the banks because of high inflation and continued devaluation? Hasn't happened so far. Hasn't happened, I think, because Turkey had that massive crisis in 2000, 2001 and really cleaned up the banking sector. So Turkish private banks... Uh, well-run, strong risk management. Uh, and I think Turks have the faith in that. That is an important point. Gallup, last brief thought on this democratic point of what we should expect 
and hope for Turkey in the future? Well, expect and hope <laughs> seems to be two different things in they this are. in this regard. I think right now, I mean, if he also has this comfortable victory in the runoff elections, then and then he already also retains the majority in parliament. That means actually an opposition in disarray. And the Turkey will be on the cusp of a generational change in the politics, I would say. Uh, I mean, the margin of victory uh, also matters, whether we will see a quick change of the faces in opposition camp or a slower change of the faces in opposition camp. But nevertheless, and a loss, an opposition defeat in the election at a time when the opposition social constituents expectation has been raised so high, I think it's almost inevitable that many on the opposition side will lose their will lose their their positions, and therefore we'll be seeing the changing face of the Turkish opposition. And but secondly, I think less discussed, but not less important, soon within two or three years, maybe or even earlier, we will be seeing a discussion about post Erdogan period for the Turkish governing conservative or the national circle, because this is the Erdogan's last term. So this is like at the time when Erdogan is going to, you know, this is for his third decade in politics, but this is also his last period in 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 power. So I think we will see an undeclared search for the post Erdogan period for Turkish for Turkish conservative circles as well. And at this time, I think the Turkish democracy will be remain significant under pressure because we will have the full monopoly of power. The personalization of power will continue. The institutionalization of the state probably will continue. So the Erdogan will be firmly in in charge of everything. And I think that the public sphere will be probably quite restricted. But we are, I think, even more important that I see that Turkey is on the cusp of a generational change in politics. Thank you for that. We are going to have to leave it there. But obviously, we'll keep an eye on this on the second round. So that is the end of our discussion. A huge thank you to all my guests, Gallup Dale, Timothy Ash, Evren Balter and Gunay Yildiz. Do follow them all on Twitter. The links are in the show notes. Reminder that you can find all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, all major platforms, as well as through our social media. So do like, follow, subscribe. Please do leave us a review. And to read more from our experts or find out more about our events or become a member, and we'd love to have you, don't forget to visit chathamhouse.org where you can follow the work of all our programs, including our Men Up and Russia and Eurasia program. Next week, we're returning to the Middle East to talk about the normalizing of relations within the Arab world towards the Assad regime. We'll also ask if the war in Yemen is finally ending. For the moment, goodbye from me, Bronwyn Maddox. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 